Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is sponsored by BBO Dance, an international arts awarding organisation based here in London. BBO Dance have syllabi, exams, events and teacher training for classical ballet, tap, musical theatre, modern, jazz and contemporary dance. Joining us today on Headstrong is Royal Ballet Principal Stephen McRae, who is currently judging the BBO dance competition Creativity Unlocked. More on that later in the podcast, so stay tuned. Thank you to BBO Dance for their support. And welcome to Headstrong. You're listening with me, Louis Strong, the host of this show. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time to this podcast, this is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of individuals from every walk of life who are in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and careers and their paths and journeys to have got them where they are today. Ultimately, I want to explore the highs and lows of the individual's life, to really engage with them and to understand what it means to be headstrong. And to me, that means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. On this week's episode of Headstrong, I was lucky enough to sit down with the principal dancer of the Royal Ballet, Stephen McRae. Now, a great friend of mine who was a ballet dancer suggested I reach out to Stephen because not only is he an immensely successful performer, but he's had an incredible journey to get him where he is today. Having been born and raised in Sydney, Australia, and then moving all the way over to the UK on his own at a very young age and breaking into the ballet world. 
Now, I really wanted to learn more about the ballet and dance and performance world because not only is it physically challenging, but the performances are incredibly mentally challenging. And I know that Stephen has a really interesting perspective. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on Headstrong, as we were just chatting about before. We, you've found a quiet corner. Now the kids are <laughs> home and, and fed. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. There's, there's never any guarantee when you've got three very small children in the house that they won't suddenly appear and pop up and scream out for you. But yeah, our house is full of energy, full of um, some vibrant personalities. So you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. We'll be looking out for a guest, anybody. Uh, so for those who are listening uh, to the podcast who don't know who you are, I want to introduce you as the, the principal of the Royal Ballet. And you've been with the Royal Ballet now since you graduated in 2004. But before we delve into your, your immensely successful career as, as a dancer, I'd quite like to talk about your, your childhood and upbringing. Because of course, you are residing in the UK now, but you are not native to the UK. You were <laughs> born and raised in Australia. That's correct. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it sounds very glamorous. And, and of, of course, when you mention Sydney, people automatically picture, you know, the Sydney Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and the beautiful harbour and the beaches. Um, and of course, I was very lucky that that was a very small part of my childhood, but I most certainly did not grow up in that environment. I grew up an hour west inland, uh, very suburban area, and uh, most certainly not an area that is known for necessarily the arts. So I grew up in a motorsport family, which you know, to many people is probably the absolute end of the spectrum, <laughs> the furthest thing away from classical ballet. Um, but my father was a drag racer and incredibly passionate about the sport. Uh, my, my mother and father had their honeymoon actually at a racetrack. That's how much it was a part of their life. <laughs> and uh, He's an auto electrician by trade. So, you know, it was his whole world. And I think from a very young age, I was very aware that my father had this passion and was so devoted to it and shared it with us. Uh, it was not something he just did and left us all at home. We were all there at the racetrack. It was a whole family affair and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> My sister and I grew up, you know, surrounded by cars and things. And, um, my sister's seven years older than me, so she did gymnastics and a bit of dancing as well. And it was probably the old cliche that I'd seen her do a, a dance lesson. And I, I said to my parents, age seven, that I wanted to have a go. And, you know, and now I look back at the whole situation, the scenario and, you know, the environment and the culture that I was, you know, living and, and growing up in. They could easily have just shot that down and said, oh, no, that's ridiculous. Uh, but they never, ever once flinched. They never, ever questioned it. My dad has backed me 110% every single step of the way, even though he knew nothing about the dance world or anything. And, um, yeah, I went along age seven, and I was incredibly shy, this kid that hid behind my mom's leg all the time. And then I, I can vividly remember this first session with these incredible teachers and this one particular teacher, she just said to me, jump as high as you can, spin as fast as you can, fall over, we'll all laugh and then get back up and we'll do it all again. And it was the most incredible sensation. I became this 
tiger that was unleashed. I went absolutely nuts. And uh, an hour later, the session had finished and went behind my mom's leg again and went home and that was it. And week by week, I just felt like this person that was inside of me just was, you know, flowing out. And um, I got more and more hooked and I, I started to do more and more lessons, you know, the jazz, the tap and all that sort of stuff. Ballet was there sort of as a, an accessory, really. It was, it was painted to me as, um, you know, ballet is like probably doing your times tables at school. It's uh, something that you have to do. It's your foundation and it's going to make you better at everything else. And I just loved it. I stepped on stage to do a solo age eight and I just loved the sensation that here I was on stage. I have practiced my little solo, but I could literally do anything right now. I could just stand there and stick my tongue out at the audience if I wanted to. <laughs> like everybody's watching me, you know. And it was a really incredible thing to to experience at a young age. And um, yeah, I just went from there really. And my parents, you know, I don't come from a silver spoon family by any means. They they did absolutely everything they could to support me. Um, you know, financially, they couldn't send me off to a private school here or there, but they, the support that they gave me by just, you know, purely stepping back and letting me do my thing was the most valuable thing I think they could ever have done for me. And uh, obviously, the older I get now that I have children, I'm more and more aware of what they really did do for me. And it was not in a materialistic way whatsoever. Is it fair to say then that perhaps your your career started being pushed into dance, well not pushed, you wanted to go to these lessons at the age of seven, that it helped bring out kind of perhaps that personality inside of you, you know, you said there that you're hiding behind your mom, your mother's leg and things like that. Yeah. Did it help you actually express who you are? Definitely, 110%. It, it was an opportunity to you know, at a young age to, to feel adrenaline and pressure because, you know, stepping on stage, there's, even at a young age, there's an element of pressure there, an expectation. And at a young age, you're learning these emotions and what, what, what am I actually feeling here? And um, they're just things that I wouldn't have, you know, I probably wouldn't have experienced until a much later date that, you know, many people, their wedding day, is that first real moment of that feeling of adrenaline and, oh my goodness, I'm in front and everybody's looking at me. And um, I was experiencing that at age seven. And it, it then led on to things at school. I was then comfortable to do public speaking and like join the debate team and all that sort of stuff, which I would never have done if I hadn't gone into a dance studio and thrown myself around. And then also, you know, I, th I just think it really it collided at a good point where I was obviously learning dance, but also academically, the local state school that I went to, um, a particular teacher that I came across uh, around year four, so what, I was about nine years old, um, was very heavily focused on like the arts and artistic and being proud about your work. Like, yes, you wrote down the right thing, but how are you presenting it? And how can we make it more interesting and exciting? And she was very creative in the way that she taught. So I think it was the combination of all of that. You know, I've, I learned actually a while ago when I was doing my first degree that, um, you know, people say that success is like a three-legged stool 
where you've got to have obviously the hard work, the talent, but there's an element of luck involved as well. And I look back at that particular situation and that time of my life, and it was literally a very lucky collision of circumstances. Me learning dance, uh, having these incredible teachers at my state school, again, not a private school, but it all just sort of worked at the same time that they found this, you know, this artistic side of me that probably never would have been discovered if, if those particular elements didn't fall into place. Definitely. With that in that family setting that you, you described at the beginning with the, the strong um, footing and stance in, in motorsports and mm. your, your father being a, a racer, what, was there ever that pressure to be pushed into that industry? Or were you always allowed to make your own decisions and actually, as you said, being supported to go into dance? But was there ever that kind of side um, kind of feeling from your, from your father, probably in particular, to go uh, into the world of motorsport? No, I, it's funny you say that because I think I'm more obsessed with that now than he is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just not behind the wheel, but uh, never say never. I, I absolutely love the sport. I think it's incredible uh, what these people can engineer and come up with. And um, it's also one of the first sports in the world where men and women race each other in the exact same race. It's no such thing as there's the men's division and the women's division. It's just if you're a human and you sit behind the wheel and you can race, then there you go, you're doing it. And um, I could easily have gone down that route because I was so inspired by it and still am now. Um, You know, people ask me quite often, oh, what dancer inspired you when you were a kid? Well, I didn't see other dancers because that was not my family. That was not my world. So I I didn't come across Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and people like that until much later and of course, once I watched them and, <laughs> of course. you know, I was hooked, of course. But earlier on, it was always these, these drag racers, these motorsport drivers that, you know, you heard their stories of, they, you know, one particular guy, John Force, um, he's, he's won the, the, the championship 16 times. And, um, you know, it's remarkable when you think that we're celebrating, obviously, people like Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher, who have won it seven times, which is incredible. This guy won it 16 times. He came from, you know, he grew up in a a trailer park in a caravan, uh, came from nothing, built up this huge empire, his daughter's race. And it's just a remarkable story. He never accepted no for an answer. And then another driver, a female, Shirley Muldowney, she in the 60s was, you know, wanting to race. And um, they just wouldn't let her race. They said, no, 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 not for women. And, uh, she just would not accept no for an answer and, you know, battled against it, battled against it. Eventually they agreed and uh, she went on and won the championship three times and all this sort of stuff. And I just, I grew up with those stories almost being the norm. That was just what it was. If you want to get on in life, you are not going to just have an easy ride. You're going to have to butt heads with people sometimes you're going to have to fight for it no one's going to do it for you um so if you're willing to you know go through a few of those battles then yeah the world is there for you you can go and tackle it and i guess that was just bred into me at an early age so it's an amazing world that i i obviously don't even know about and it's just it sounds so inspiring for a young young kid when you're you're kind of six seven and growing up and hearing about these mm. incredible drivers and as you say butt heads you're literally you know racing one-on-one at times and you know you yeah. have to get on with it that sounds that's amazing 
Yeah, yeah. But there was never any pressure, you know, you know no. from my father or anything to, to go into it. I, if I hadn't found dance, I think most certainly I would have been behind the wheel of one of those cars. My, my sister actually started doing her license in, in my dad's car mm-hmm. at one point. But um, drag racing does not happen if it rains. And every time, the third attempt of her to, to get her license, um, it rained again. And uh, it was my mother, actually, that just said, I think this is a sign. Let's just stop, quit while we're ahead. And, um, <laughs> you know, so she didn't actually pursue it in the end. But you know, my, my dad always jokes. Like, he always, he says, oh, you know, if, if we suddenly won the lottery tomorrow or something, um, I would definitely go out and, you know, set up a team. And he sort of looks at me like that look of would you drive it? And I would, I would get into it straight away. I'd absolutely love it. It'd be something, it'd be a thrill. At what point, At then, what point then did you, you realise that uh, dance was going to be that professional career? Because you, you talked about that initial inspiration at the age of seven, going onto that, onto the, um, onto the boards and, and jumping as high as you could. But at what yeah. point did you realise that it could be a profession? Really late, to be honest. I, I, again, because of the environment, I just didn't know that that was an actual career. I just loved to do it and I loved the feeling that it gave me. Um, but I, I had very, you know, forward thinking teachers from a very young age that always took me as far as they felt they could take me and then passed me on to somebody else, um, which is an incredible quality for a teacher to have. And so at about the age of 13, I was introduced, um, to a ballet teacher in Sydney and she said, uh, to my parents, Oh, after my first lesson, your son will go to the Royal Ballet. And uh, they told me that. And, you know, I was so naive. I thought the Royal Ballet, was that in Melbourne? Or <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know. And then they said, no, 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 it's in London. And I thought, why on earth do I need to go to London? Like, why would you leave Australia? <laughs> um, and they were like, no, because like you could actually do this. This could be your career. You could, you know, have a life through this. You could be paid to do what you love to do. Um but even then, it, it didn't click. It didn't click to me because, you know, I was at school. I loved technical drawing and architecture and, you know, I was a bit of a geek. I loved maths and Latin and stuff. So although I loved to dance, I was still obviously very focused on my academics. And then it was about the age of 15. Um, you know, my teach, my ballet teacher really was getting serious about it, talking about preparing videos to send to the Royal Ballet School to see if they're interested in things. And um, yeah, age 16, I did uh, a competition, an international competition, and the actual competition was held in Sydney that year for the first time, and I, I won the gold medal. And then a month later, I was sent to Switzerland, to the Prix de Lausanne, and um, they have this huge competition there that offers scholarships to the best dance schools and you know dance companies around the world. And I was very fortunate that I was awarded um, first gold medal and uh, the first place gets to choose where they want to go. And so I chose the Royal Ballet School and that was an absolute lifeline because without that, there's not a chance in hell that we could have afforded to, you know, send me off to one of the most expensive schools on the planet um, by myself in London, accommodation, everything. There's just no way it was going to happen. So uh, overnight, my whole world 
literally flipped upside down. I flew to Switzerland with my mom. Uh, we'd both obviously never been to Europe before. And um, the final was on a Sunday. She was so stressed during the whole week of the competition that she even had to have medical attention while we were there because her blood pressure went through the roof and stuff. Um, which, you know, I've still, I still struggle with that because I think, oh my God, I put my parents through this horrific situation because it must have been awful for them knowing that if I didn't get a prize, they couldn't actually, you know, help fulfill my dream of, of going to London. Uh, but anyway, the, the results came through on the Sunday evening and I won, which was obviously an incredible moment. And I got to share that with my mom. Um, but the director of the Royal Ballet School was at the competition. She was the head of the jury. And she actually said, um, don't fly all the way back to Australia tomorrow to then come in you know, September. Uh, just we'll change your flight and you'll go straight to London tomorrow. And that's it. And that was wow. it. We, we changed the flight. I landed into London on the Monday with my mum. We stayed in a little hotel in Earl's Court. Um, we couldn't afford for her to stay any longer, so she stayed the one night. Um, the Tuesday, I said goodbye to her. She got on a bus at Earl's Court. I had my suitcase, and I got on the tube and went into Covent Garden to the Royal Ballet School. Uh, homeless, nothing. Didn't have a bank account. Nothing. I don't even think I had much money with me. Like it was just the most <laughs> surreal wow. moment. And uh, yeah, so the school helped to find, um, you know, accommodation. So I stayed in a hostel for six months and yeah, it, my whole life just literally flipped overnight. It was that's the most bizarre thing. That is so incredible. I literally just, I was had goosebumps listening to you when you were saying that. That's an incredible story. Just how that world transitioned so quickly and, and so yeah. dramatically. I mean, what a light, literally a life changing scenario mm. that you found yourself in. I just wanted to quickly touch on kind of the platform that you had in Australia there as well, because of course, you know, Australia is quite literally the opposite end of the world. What yeah. is the kind of, what's the, um, how, how's it structured over there in terms of dance and the, the opportunities that are given over there compared to that here of, over here in the UK? You talked about Switzerland and competitions all yeah. around the world. And I know that you've competed and, and danced all over the world, but how does it differ over there to here? I mean, you, you can't compare Europe, really, to the rest of the world. You know, Europe is such a central hub of the arts. And, you know, even if you're in London, you can be anywhere in Europe at the click of a finger. You can be over in New York as, as quick as you want to be as well. You can be over in Russia. It's such a central hub and there's so much history surrounding the arts in that particular part of the world. And there are so many, particularly in the dance world, there are so many dance organizations and theaters. And there's a real love of theater in those, in those countries. And then, you know, there's an incredible theater scene in Australia as well, but it's still predominantly a sporting nation. So there are wonderful opportunities out there and there's so much talent out there in Australia, but I wanted to, I wanted to go see what else was out there. There's an, a huge world out there. And, um, you know, maybe it's just because I grew up in Australia. Maybe I always have it in the back of my head that Australia is always there. Um, but I don't know, my teacher in Australia was very much um, of the opinion that the Royal Ballet is there. <laughs> it's the place and, to be. Uh, 
you should always aim for the top and uh, work your way down from there. And, um, you know, I was so young as well that if that's what your teacher said, then you kind of believe that, don't you? So, and then obviously when I joined the Institute <laughs> and uh, learned more and more about it and became part of it, of course, I see that, yeah, it really is one of the, the greatest organizations. You had, as we just talked about, immense success from that, that competition in Australia and then moving out to Switzerland and then, you know, in a couple of days, you're there in London attending the Royal Ballet School. <laughs> Did you have a chance at all to even stop and take a breath whilst you were in London, maybe a couple of weeks in and then realize, wow, I'm actually here. You know, mum's already gone home now and I'm here on my own. Uh, what were your emotions going through your head? Because you're still yeah. really young at this point. Yeah. So I'd only just turned 17 a few weeks before. Um, obviously, I'd never lived away from home before. You know, suddenly I was having to think of everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> in a city that I'd never been to before. I'd never been that cold in my life. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to lie about it. I struggled with severe homesickness for, it was almost two years. It took me a very long time uh, to adjust. Um, it was a huge shift, even just in the dance world for me, because I'd never seen a live ballet performance before <laughs> and mm. suddenly you know i arrived into london on the monday said goodbye to my mum on the tuesday morning went to the school tuesday morning and at lunchtime tuesday was already sent across the road to the royal ballet company um, because they use students as extras for certain scenes and i was there at midday on my first day already there holding a tray of cups with Darcy Bustle as Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. No. And that was my first day. And, you know, I hadn't even seen a live ballet before. I hadn't seen a professional ballerina up close. And there's Darcy Bustle, you know, my first day in London. So it was the most overwhelming thing, of course. But there was this constant, you know, struggle in my head because, of course, it was everything that I you know, imagined happening and dreaming that it would happen. But obviously the realization of life um, is two different things. And homesickness is debilitating. It's so debilitating. You know, I was constantly breaking out into all these rashes and you know, it was probably put on by anxiety, brought about by anxiety and stuff like that. And the hostel that I was staying in, I shared a room with a guy that, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know his background or who he was, anything, a complete stranger to me. And I would wake up every morning and it was just a bed with a wardrobe at the end. And my suitcase was on top of the wardrobe. And of course, every morning I'd wake up and open my eyes. And the first thing I would see was the suitcase. And every morning I would think I should just put everything in that case and just go to Heathrow and go home <laughs> because it will be much easier. And then, um, my very first teacher actually was in touch with me and knew that I was struggling and just kept saying to me, after three months, let's talk again. If you're still having that first thought every morning, let's work out a plan. So after three months spoke and yeah, I, I still look at the case and I really want to come home, but I'll just go to class first okay, we'll talk again in three months time. And she just kept saying like, just keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. 
And, um, you know, it was a great, great advice because of course my mum, being my mum would always just say, okay, just get on the, get on the plane. Just come home. Okay. Yeah. come home. I'll look after you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really difficult. And then obviously after about 18 months, I then joined the Royal Ballet Company and it all sort of starts again because everybody that I'd got to know at school and made very close friendships with, um, didn't join the company. There were only three of us that year out of our entire year that got jobs at the Royal Ballet Company um, out of what, nearly 30 kids. And so you then start from scratch again and it then, it just magnifies then because you are surrounded by the likes of Darcy Bustle and all these incredible artists that you dream of working alongside. but it's also very daunting. And then you, you start to doubt yourself and you think, what am I doing here? Like these people have been around this Institute since the age of 11 or whatever. And here I am, I've just turned 18 and you know, they're telling me about this ballet that we're going to do. And I've not even heard of it. I don't even know what the music is. I don't know anything about it. So it was a whole constant um, learning curve. And, you know, I guess just sort of like many performers whether you're a dancer an actor a musician it's just looking ready and looking the part and even though you have no idea what's going on you just look responsive and proactive and yep I'll just do that I'll jump in I have no idea what's going on but I will do it and that was just sort of the mentality I I, I adopted and it was probably you know the best way to be this episode is sponsored by BBO Dance Stephen is currently judging a dance challenge to support the psychological well-being of dance lovers in lockdown. It's called Creativity Unlocked and it's open to all non-professional dancers of any age and ability. All you need to do is download a piece of music, create a dance for it in any genre and you can win a free one-on-one coaching session with the judge of that category. To enter... Go click the link in our bio or go to at BBO Dance on Instagram. Rather than ballet, Stephen will be judging the tap category. And here's Stephen explaining why he loves tap. Rhythm is within us all. And tap dancing enables you to embody those rhythms, ultimately turning your body into a percussion instrument. Tap dancing is the most incredible way of communicating and connecting with an audience. And it's something I've absolutely been passionate about since the age of seven. I'm so excited to judge the tap section and I look forward to seeing what all of the incredible talent can come up with. It's really important to note as well that the time that you were at school, actually, actually still training, that was, this is all pre, um, people don't realize this is all pre FaceTime and Zoom calls and all this. And so I can only imagine that the, the, the feelings of homesickness and anxiety are completely escalated to a point that the only way that you can speak to your, your parents are on a phone call, maybe. Yeah. And writing letters. You know, I had one of those phone cards. You'd go to the 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 off license or whatever and you'd you'd say uh, buy a phone card or whatever and um i'd have to wait my turn and line up at the the phone and you know hopefully it wouldn't run out and i'd speak to them so you know when skype came along i can't even remember what year that was but when that came along it was 
like huge. But even then, of course, my parents didn't have all the technology at hand. So, you know, it was, oh, when they go to this one cousin's house who then has a computer, you know, once every six weeks, we can Skype. And it was a big ordeal. Whereas now, obviously, my mum and dad are, you know, all clued in now. So they see my children, you know, every week. So it's wonderful. It must have been really important as well to have that because what it, what it sounds like is you had an amazing support from your parents as a as a very amazing family bubble. But it must have been fundamental to have that teacher back home, kind of guiding you and navigating you through the right questions and right paths. Because I I've been there before as well, where occasionally you just want to not you know give up almost, and you want to go well. You need to follow your your heart and how you feel. But often it's not the the best decision in your in your life and in your career. And you know that having that that person there to actually almost as a mentor guide you through what is and isn't the right choice. And I don't think mm. that they. It sounds like they didn't force you to do anything. They just said, "Well, hang no. on, let's ask you. We'll ask you this, and then let's see what you think. Yeah, and settle in and carry on. And I think by the end of it, you almost convinced yourself. Well, yeah, and I think also they know that I'm very stubborn as well, and there's also a huge element of responsibility as well, because yeah, that was my dream. That was my goal. And I know that my parents sacrificed a hell of a lot to ensure that I was able to pursue it. And the idea of just throwing it away so quickly without a fight, I thought it's just, it's just useless for everybody. Absolutely everybody. Um, and those motorsport drivers going back to them, they just kept popping into my head. Like kept thinking, they did not have it easy any part of their journey. And I just kept saying to myself, that's that moment. You know, this is one of these chapters that I'm going through. And um, yeah, it's literally taking each day at a time, I think, and not being overwhelmed by, you know, the enormity of whatever it is that you're feeling at the time. You joined the company in 2005. Would you say that your inspiration then to kind of continue and keep going and, and, you know, be the best you can be and climb to the top of the ladder was your, your family and knowing how much they'd given to you. Yeah, it was, it was a really tricky time actually, because the more, obviously the, the more and more uh, I got involved with the company and performing and climbing the ranks and, you know, you have to dedicate and devote everything to it. It's, it's one of those professions that, uh, it's all or nothing. And it, it, it really was all or nothing. And it was a difficult period of my life with my family, actually, because, because I was on the other side of the world and you didn't have this interaction of, you know, online chats and videos and stuff like that. It was really difficult to try and share what I was going through and explaining it to them because they're on the other side of the world. They know nothing about the dance world they know nothing about the organization that I'm now swamped in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they can't comprehend a text message when they'd say, oh, what are you up to today? And then I reply saying, well, I'm actually sat in Buckingham Palace today because we're performing for the Queen. How do you respond to that? Like, we grew up in the quiet suburb of Sydney and suddenly your son is in Buckingham Palace. Like, that's just the most surreal <laughs> thing ever. And so for a period of time, it was really difficult because I felt like, although I was on the other side of the world, so of course there is geographical distance, I felt like emotionally there was becoming a distance as well because they couldn't comprehend what I was going through. And I was obviously so 
is so obsessed about my career and focusing on going forward and moving forward that I also probably wasn't taking the time to try and also understand where they were coming from as well. So there was a, a few difficult years, I have to say, where, um, you know, of course, there was always that love and support, but the the closeness wasn't perhaps where any of us wanted it to be. And um, thankfully, you know, over the, the last sort of 10 years, that has really changed again. And obviously having children as well now, that makes me calm down and go, oh my God, like stop being such an idiot to your parents and you know, <laughs> things exactly. like that. So um, uh, yeah, I'm just incredibly fortunate that I've always had um, two parents that no matter what have just been there. Absolutely. It sounds like an immensely supportive family. But let's talk about the company now as well, because in a mm-hmm. company, as much as it is also its own family, it's made up of individuals. And as I said, you've climbed, climbed the ladder and you're now the principal of the Royal Ballet. How mm-hmm. does it feel to be that standout performer? Does it increase the weight on your shoulders or have you, as you, as I say, climb the ladder, does that actually just come part of, part of the job? Yeah, it's funny you say that because when you're really young and you get like an exciting role for the first time, and perhaps it's a role that's way above your rank in the company, because the the ballet company, for people that don't know, it's sort of like an an army. You know, there are actual ranks that you're given. Uh, so you've got the corps de ballet, uh, who predominantly are the big group, and they do all the big group numbers, and they hold the show together. You've got your soloists that do, you know, standout little solos and things like that. And then you've got the principals who do the lead roles. And um, so quite often when you're young, perhaps in the corps de ballet or maybe a soloist, you're given a principal role to do. So it's a a role that's above your rank. And when you're young and you're given that opportunity, I always just had this mentality of, well, I've got nothing to lose. You know, they asked me to do this. So they obviously think I'm up to it and I'm just going to absolutely go for it and you know, pretend to be a rock star for three hours and <laughs> let's see what happens. <laughs> and um, obviously that's great and that's fun. And you kind of get away with a lot when you're young as well, because there is no expectation of, you know, greatness or whatever. And then when you are actually given that rank and okay, you are now a principal and that is now the work that you will do and you are expected to deliver that particular standard every single time. It's not just, oh, here's one show, have a go. No, that's your actual job now. Every time you step on stage, you will deliver that. Um, And that changes mentally how you approach things. And, um, you know, there were periods where I would find myself playing it safe on stage because you thought, I don't want to risk anything here. So, um, okay, I'll I'll just do that keep it clean, keep it stylish, keep it classy. And then other times you think, okay, I'm going to really try something here. And then coaches would be like, what were you doing? Like that was disaster, you know? (laughs) Um, So I had to, you know, I've had to work obviously with sports psychologists and things like that along the way, because stepping on stage in front of two and a half thousand people is uh, a lot of pressure. And, you know, people have paid good money to come and watch you and they're coming to watch you to escape their daily lives as well. They come to the theatre to, you know, to separate what's going on in their own lives for three hours and they can lose themselves in what's going on on the stage. And that's your job as a performer to take them on that journey. Um, 
they don't really care if you are in pain that night or, you know, you're, re- you're performing with someone that you've only had one rehearsal with or, you know, things like that. They're, they're not interested in that. Your job is to deliver something that they can go away thinking, oh, I love that tonight, you know. Um, and that comes with a lot of pressure to, to be able to do that every night. So sports psychologists have really helped. Um, injuries along the way has also helped because it's made... I was going to ask you actually about that in particularly uh, where you, you know, at that time in your career where you had a, you had a long period of absence because of injury and that must've affected you upstairs mentally in a significant way to a point where actually you were probably looking at the suitcase again. Well, yeah, I was very young. I think I was about 21, nearly 22. And I, I'd done my first principal roles and things like that. You know, I did Romeo. I'd learned it in five days and um, it was a huge moment in my career and it was the most extraordinary moment. I'll never, ever forget that period. But of course, my body freaked out soon after it and, you know, they found problems um, and I had to have virtually a year off stage. And uh, I was climbing the ranks at that time and I was, you know, like a starved lion at that point. I was like... Oh, I'm climbing the ranks and I want to do more and more and more and more. And of course my body said, uh, hang on, <laughs> you know, you've, you've been going crazy since you were seven years old. Um, and obviously that period of building up to come to London and do those competitions and then living by yourself and God knows what, um, yeah, my body obviously finally caught up and, uh, it was a very good opportunity for me to, um, to really start to grow up really yeah i had to i had to stop and look at how i was working um learn more about the profession as well you know i watched a performance almost every night during that year off which is mental but you know i was young i, I was i didn't have a family or anything so um I, I came to london for my career so what else would i do you know it was you devote your time to the career and I watched so many shows. I would watch performers that perhaps I wasn't the biggest fan of, but I would watch them and go, I can still learn something from these people. Like they're at the top as well. So they've got there for a reason, learn from them. Um, and then obviously the ones that I absolutely adored as well, I would watch them and just be inspired and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I felt like it was a great year for me. I came back stronger and um, hopefully wiser as well. And then the year later I was made the I made a principal so um I'm grateful that did happen um and then we fast forward to today and I'm recovering from another (laughs) yeah injury um but again you have to flip that you know I I stepped on stage last year in October um and snapped my Achilles in front of two and a half thousand people and uh that's not what you want to do ever (laughs) let alone in front of a, a full audience but again, you have to flip it around. I, my body has obviously been screaming out over the last few years saying, this is not right. Like you need to reevaluate how you're working and how you're functioning, your health and all that sort of stuff. And um, it's been the most incredible year so far because I've been able to do that, obviously battling with, you know, COVID and all that sort of stuff as well. And I have three very young children that they need their father. They don't care if I've snapped my Achilles or not. So um, I think you always have a choice. You can choose a negative route or a positive route. And I had to flick that switch very quickly the night that I snapped my Achilles because I thought, well, I could either spiral here and this is not going to end well, 
um, or let's actually make this a really positive situation and learn from it. So I've chosen that route. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you you absolutely have used use it as a positive and as a force for change and don't sit there and dwell on it. But I was speaking to a friend of mine in preparation of speaking to you who was a professional ballet dancer. He's much to my dismay now, um, sadly, sadly hung up his hang up his ballet shoes. But he, he was he was he was working out in Estonia and he's worked works throughout Europe, which is fantastic. But he had a question for you if if I'm happy to if you're happy for me to ask yeah. it for you. Because he's suffered from injury him and himself and he said when you're injured, what's it like watching your friends and co-workers be able to work, especially being put on the bench, which is the pits mm-hmm. to those listening? Um, what, what, how do you feel when you see that? Yeah, that, that's, you know, a form of torture. <laughs> um, I, I've actually spoken to people about this particular year with COVID and, you know, it's obviously been devastating to theatres and the performing arts. Um, but again, just looking selfishly at my own situation, mentally, it's been a small blessing because mm. I'm not missing out on huge amounts of shows. I'm not in the Royal Opera House listening to music over the loudspeaker because there's a stage rehearsal going on and I'm in the rehab department doing my exercises and having to listen to that music, knowing that I would be on the stage right then <laughs> dancing to that um, that's a lot for the the head to take. So I've not had to suffer that uh, that element this time around. But you know, previous injuries that I've had, it's awful because you know that if you're injured, somebody else is going to do your show for you. Which you know, it's fine if someone young's getting an opportunity. But if it's somebody who's already got their own work to do and they're having to do your work as well you feel awful for them because you know that that's just putting more pressure and more uh, stress on them as well, um, which might ultimately lead to them then suffering an injury or something. Um, But then you also have to flip it again because Mm. many of the opportunities that I got when I was really young was simply because of people being injured. So-and-so's injured. Okay, we need somebody to do it. Stephen, do you know it? And I would always just say, yes. And they'd say, okay, you're in for this rehearsal. Um, so again, you know, me having injuries, yeah, it's rubbish for me, but it's also giving somebody else an incredible opportunity at that point, which I had the exact same situation when I was starting out. So it's kind of the circle of life, I guess, in the ballet world. <laughs> it swings around. Everyone gets that opportunity sooner or later because of, uh, we have to say that the body body can't keep up, especially in the physical profession that you're in. And that's what I wanted yeah. to talk about specifically to isolate before you go on 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 a show, I know a live performances will pr- probably feel an eternity ago for you now, but let's isolate it just before you go on stage. How mm. do you prepare for that mental and physical challenge that you're about to embark on? And over the years, I imagine it's probably tr- changed on what you do before each each show. But is there a stretch routine for you personally? Some breathing exercises? Do you run through particular yeah. moves? Yeah, it constantly evolves, I have to say, my pre-performance preparation. Um, when I was younger, I would go up to the studio because we rehearse all day as well. So mm. uh, it's not like we just come in an hour no, before. No, 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 it's not. There. We're there all day. Um, but usually if you're doing the lead role, you have an easier day during the day. Um, so I would normally go up to the studio, you know, maybe an hour and a half before the show, um, and do a, a, a class, a ballet class to warm up. 
um, probably rehearse bits of the ballet that I'm going to do and basically tire myself out before the curtain went up, uh, which now I look back at and go, what was I thinking? Like, how ridiculous <laughs> would a marathon runner run a marathon before they run the marathon? No, like that's just <laughs> obscene. So um, over the years, it's sort of changed. Um, depending if you've got an injury or a niggle or something as well, you have to nurse that. But more recently, I've preferred to be in my dressing room. I have my own music going on. Um, I do a bar, like so it's a bit of ballet class in the dressing room um, because it stops me from then going crazy in the studio and doing steps over and over and over again that I don't need to do them over and over and over again before the curtain goes up you, because you have to then say to yourself, hang on, I've trained my whole life to do this. Why would I suddenly not be able to do the step? You have to have a bit of self-trust and say, it's fine. I've put the work in. Whether you've had a month to prepare for that show or two days to prepare for that show, whatever those circumstances were, you've made the most of that particular time. You've done everything you can with whatever the circumstance is to prepare and you will go out there and do your best. And, uh, you know, you, no performer steps on stage going, oh, I'm going to purposely go out there and do a rubbish show. Everybody <laughs> goes out there to try and do their absolute best. And I think when you have that sort of acceptance of, yeah, I've done everything I can. Sometimes it's enough. Sometimes it's not enough. But this is what it is. And I'm just absolutely going to go and uh, give it my all it kind of does take a bit of the pressure off because there's enough people around you to put pressure on you. There's enough people to stress you out. You know, we've got coaches, directors, we've got audiences, critics, we've got all these people that they're all there putting pressure on you. So why are you going to put even more pressure on yourself? You've got to take a bit of control of that situation and just say to yourself, listen, trust yourself. You're going to make it work in some way. You've got to trust the fact that, as you say, you have literally trained your entire life, as have the entire company behind you. And that yeah. leads me on to, uh, to say that at one point in your career, we know that one company member probably became far more important than the rest of the company members. And that is, of course, your wife, who is a dancer yes. as well. Yeah. So, uh, so how, when, how did this, um, which, what show was this on? Come on, give me the details. <laughs> give me the nitty gritty so bits. We actually met on, on my first day in London when I joined the Royal Ballet School. And, and that's me done, guys. There we go. <laughs> it was meant to be. We, yeah, we met and uh, I sat next to her watching Darcy Bustle do Sleeping Beauty. And she could see that I was just totally overwhelmed, out of my comfort zone, but excited. And um, she joined the Royal Ballet School. Uh, well, she joined as junior associates when she was eight years old, but she went to the Royal Ballet School age 11. Uh, which is a boarding school in Richmond Park. And uh, she grew up in Yorkshire. So she was, you know, four or five hour drive away from her parents. And um, she, she got it. She understood totally <laughs> what, I was, uh, what I was feeling. And, um, you know, we were very close all through school. And um, she actually, when we graduated, went to Norway and danced in Norway for three years and then came back and joined the Royal Ballet. And uh, throughout those years, while she was in Norway, we obviously got uh, closer and closer. And uh, it was wonderful then that she was able to come back to London and 
that's it. We've been together ever since. Well, and now you have an incredible family. You've got three fantastic children and you've obviously (laughs) been able to spend even more time than you possibly could have imagined with them this year than ever. And it sounds like from everything that you've told me that family is what your life centers around along with your work. How do you balance your work and your family and ensure that you give enough time to satisfy both? Yeah. Um, The injuries have actually helped facilitate that, I have to say. Um, because the rehab programs are very intense, but they are limited in terms of time because you have to follow a real structured, um, you know, analytical program that's been put together by sports scientists. So um, you can't just go in every day and bash it out. You have to actually follow the the different protocols and, and programs that are put in place. So it's meant that I'm not obviously in there late at night doing shows and things like that. So you know, this afternoon, I was able to make it back in time to pick my daughter up from school and do her homework with her when we get home from school. And um, most mornings, I can drop my daughter off at school on the way into to do my work and things like that. Um, my rest days, it means that I get to be with the boys and, and be there for them. So it's um, when we're performing full out, it's difficult. We've always had to have um, a nanny involved because my family's in Australia, my wife's family's in Yorkshire. So it's, we don't have a support system around us. So we've always had to um, have a nanny. Um, but, you know, through maternity leave and different injuries recently, we've not had to, to go through that route. We've been able to juggle it ourselves right now. Um, and until we're back performing full on, um, that's the way it will continue. It's interesting with the year that we have had, I know that most listeners are probably exhausted by COVID discussions on cars and the news, but it would be foolish of me not to talk to you about how the creative world, you know, being in it myself, that it's completely shut down and it's, it is challenging for people who, when mm. it's their, their, your way of life, how have you found 2020 and the impact of it? And, and where do you see kind of things going into the future? Yeah, you know, I think the, the need for the arts to continue to reach wider audiences, bigger audiences, more diverse audiences. Um, it's the need for that has just been magnified greatly during 2020. And it's forced organizations to actually think outside the box in a, I guess, a more open and free way as well. You know, they've been forced into it. Oh, okay, we, we can't actually have people come into our theatre, so how can we still talk to our audience? How can we communicate with them? And um, I think that's been a real positive side. I've seen some great things by different theatres around the world uh, interacting with their audiences, and even simply the way that the Royal Opera House um, have, have set up certain live performances. I hope that that's something that will continue, even when we are performing full-time again, um, why not have the cameras set up once a week so that, yeah, this is a normal show, but anybody at home can tune in and watch it. It doesn't have to be, you know, once a month, a cinema relay or something like that. It could just become the norm. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be an incredible vehicle to show people, Hey, like just ballet is not elitist or, you know, high, uh, incredible theater is not this elitist thing. Um, it's something for everybody. And um, I think that's what 2020, hopefully, is uh, is going to enable many people and theatres to do. I think there are so many uh, incredible platforms now that are able to display 
talent in so many unique ways and it's almost sometimes like you think about um when when cinema started showing p- performances when actually mm-hmm. that that's it's foolish to not even be thinking about uh, adapting these into greater pieces of work where it shouldn't just be you know the camera one one either side and then the central central one we got to start thinking about creating um moving yeah. digital content specific, that's, especially that's with a, yeah ballet yeah it's been a huge bugbear of mine for years because Dance is the most incredible, you know, I'm obviously very biased, but it's the most incredible art form because it speaks to everybody. You can dance in front of an audience, any corner of the planet, and you can connect with that audience. You can communicate with that audience and you haven't even said a word. There's no language barrier. It's a universal language. Um, And you can do a movement and make somebody feel something. You know, you can do an intimate pas de deux, like a, a duet with somebody. And you can, you can really take the audience on a journey. And um, if dance is going to connect with wider audiences, it needs to be filmed specifically in a way that a piece is created for film. It can't just be constantly, as you said, a stage piece with a couple of cameras just put in the auditorium. That serves a purpose, of course, because you're just showing a live show. But there's a real void there for brilliant works to be created, um, particularly for the digital world. Well, you never know. Maybe, maybe on your shoulders in a few years' time, you might be taking the reins on that project. But I'd be curious to talk to you about the, um, the dance industry just briefly and how it's shaped and evolved since you have been involved. Because sadly, disappointingly, I mean, in any industry, of course, you hear stories of exploitation, uh, sexism, all, all these things, favoritism. How have you seen it evolve since your involvement and specifically at the Royal Ballet, but also globally? Yeah, I mean, every every career, every industry has its, its good and its bad, doesn't it? You know, you, I think in these particular art forms and these professions where it's largely based on a, one person's opinion you know it's does the director like you does the choreographer like you it's um it's things like that that that's always going to be out of your control because there are so many different influences that affect their decisions all the time it's not just a case of oh that's the best dancer right now so we're going to use that it's no it's who are they friends with? Oh, that person doesn't like them, so they won't work well together. Okay, we can't use them. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, you know, there's so many different little silly politics that go on in every profession. Um, so, of course, I've witnessed that and been on the receiving end of that as well. So that, that can be really frustrating. But it's important for, you know, particularly young dancers entering the profession to know that obviously that does exist. Um, but you just got to stay true to yourself and and just keep doing what you're doing because you don't need to be best friends with the choreographer and best friends with the director and all that. Just do your job. <laughs> just keep doing your job. Do your job well. That's ultimately what's going to help you long-term. Um, but yeah, I think I'm very lucky at the Royal Ballet. I have a, a very good relationship with my director who's you know always been very supportive of me and um, I look forward to being able to get back onto the stage in the coming months so that uh, I can continue on supporting his vision of what he wants the company to do. Um, and also to, you know, pursue my own endeavors as well. What, what does 2021 hold for you and the Royal Ballet? Of course we have, we have promises and hopes of, of a return. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the Royal Ballet's been um, very cautious about making big plans for 2021 so far. Um, so they, they haven't actually announced um, specific details yet, but as soon as those audiences are allowed in on a big scale, I know that we'll be bringing out some of our big, big, big productions that the audiences love coming to. And um, it's a real golden opportunity, I think, by doing those great big pieces um, to help introduce new audiences to us as well. Um, bringing in people that, you know, maybe during lockdown, they've, they've watched something online for the first time that they would not have watched before. And uh, it's getting them from their sofa and actually come into the theater and uh, witness it live because live theater is just the most remarkable thing. It's, in, it's an incredible sensation. And so if we could, you know, get people that have come to the ballet regularly to bring someone with them every time that mm. has never been to the ballet before and come and watch a performance of Romeo and Juliet or something like that, that is not your typical ballet. You know, it's not girls in tutus and things like that. It's, it's pure passion and drama and there's, it's, there's actual live sword fights on stage and that's proper fencing. It's not just stage sword not fights. not stage it's, combat. This isn't a... No. A like if I don't itself, block, though. yeah, if I don't yeah. block as Romeo, then I'm actually going to get hit in the head with a sword. So um, it's the real deal. So I, I just think it's a, a wonderful opportunity for people to come and watch, you know, big, incredible productions at the Royal Opera House. Um, that's what we do, and we do it well. <laughs> well, I will be there. I will be there as soon as the doors are open. <laughs> Looking into the future now, you know, further, further forward from 2021, mm. let's go beyond. You, you, know, you yeah. must have an eye on the future because, of course, a, a ballet dancer's career is finite as much as you probably wouldn't want it to be. But I know that you've, just, you've achieved a master's from the Uni of Exeter in marketing. I th- is it marketing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, that's where I got my degree from as well, so great choice. Ah, very good. They were a great um, university. They were very helpful. It's, a, it's an amazing uni. I love it. In fact, I'm actually down here now, so I, I've, I've taken some time out of London. I'm spending some time down in the southwest, away from the hustle and bustle of London. <laughs> but um, was that because you showed immense interest in the subject itself, or are you, do you have eyes on the future to go into something like that? Because surely choreography <laughs> must fit in somewhere in the future, or is it actually um, looking elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I've always been open to the world. <laughs> um, I think predominantly my first initial, um, I guess you'd say, purpose or reason for choosing marketing was if we want to continue attracting new audiences, growing our audience, um, and creating works for our audiences, we have to understand our audience. We need to understand what our brand really is. What is our brand representing? What's it standing for? Um, Who are we even actually trying to target here? And marketing just encompasses all of that. It's not just a case of, you know, numbers and sales. It's actually understanding the connections between brand and people and what what it is, what is it that that's doing for those people? What are the people doing for the brand? And I think sometimes in the world of arts, 
it becomes so self-indulgent that, yeah, I've been involved in ballets where I've been in, you know, every step of the way with the choreographer and I've seen what they're doing and I've, I understand what they're trying to create and all this sort of stuff. And it's remarkable when you know what's going on, but sometimes when you sit in the audience and you've come for the first time and you're watching this piece for the first time, not knowing anything about it, it just goes straight over your head because it's so self-indulgent. You have no concept of what you're watching. It's, you know, the equivalent of looking at perhaps a really modern piece of art that, Mm. you know, some people will just look at and go, well, that just looks like paint splattered on a wall. And someone else will say, no, it's, you know, and there's this whole story behind it. And when you find out the story, it's remarkable, but it, um, it won't connect with people instantly. And sometimes I feel like we drift into that category a little too often. And sometimes people lose sight of the fact that people just want to be entertained. They want to feel something. They want to laugh. They want to cry. They want to get excited. And um, I think we just need to learn a little bit more about what it is that our audiences want to see. If we're going to get rid of these stigmas of elitism and, oh, the Royal Opera House is only for the wealthy and things like that, um, we need to really reach out there and, you know, get into the minds of our audiences and, and pull them in that way. It was really interesting. Stephen, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but just before we kind of finish up, there's two questions that I like to ask all of my guests that come on the podcast. And the first one, slightly tailored to you, what, what piece of advice would you give to any young dancer, perhaps, you know, just slightly before that competition time or that you were, that when you, when you got offered the scholarship, what piece of advice would you give to a young dancer trying to get into the industry? There are a thousand different routes and thousand different paths to every destination. <laughs> um, there is most certainly not one way in. Um, you're always going to have a few doors closed in front of you. Um, you're always going to come across somebody that will say, mm, it's never going to happen for you. You shouldn't do it. Um, those are the people that, can't ultimately make those decisions for you. It's up to you. You're the one and um, you're going to have to push through a few battles, a few struggles, but find a route that's going to work for you. The same route that worked for me is not going to be the same route that will work for the next person. Very sound advice. And the finally, the last question, what does the word headstrong mean to you? <laughs> um headstrong to me is just sheer determination that's what that means to me um in my world you know with all the different things that are thrown at you whether that's coming from an environment that knows nothing about the world i'm entering in or injuries and all sorts of things like that body shaming and all those you know awful things that come with it um if I didn't have this inner determination, then all of that would have swamped me many, many years ago. I'm doing this for me because I love to do it. And now I have three very young people um, that now rely on me as well. So I have that extra fuel in the tank now because I'm not only just doing it for me, I'm now doing it for them too. It's incredible. Stephen, you're, you're absolutely, absolute inspiration. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, wish you all the best. And here's to 2021 and, and the dances that we will be able to see and experience. 
Exactly. We'll catch up at the end of 21 to, to compare. <laughs> Absolutely. Crikey. I think there'll be quite a lot to compare. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Cheers. Today's episode of Headstrong is sponsored by BBO Dance, an international arts awarding organisation based in London. The man that you've been listening to, Stephen McRae, is judging BBO Dance's competition, Creativity Unlocked, which is open to all. Yes, you heard that right. It is open to everyone. Non-professional dancers of any age and any ability. Be sure to enter the tap section and you just might win a one-on-one coaching session with Stephen himself. Do you have what it takes to impress him? Head over to the Instagram of BBO Dance and give it a go at BBO Dance. Good luck to everybody. And that is the end of this episode with Stephen McRae. I want to thank Stephen for his incredibly generous amount of time that he spent talking to me on this episode of Headstrong. And I think we can certainly all agree that he's an incredibly inspiring individual with a truly unique story. I wish him and his family a safe 2021 and a speedy recovery for him and the industry. If you've enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with all your family and friends. It's great to get the messages out from Headstrong to more and more listeners. Tune in next week for another brilliant episode of Headstrong. But lastly, I just want to thank you for clicking on this podcast and having a listen to Headstrong. Stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.